Hey guys, and thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Roots Running Podcast. It's been a while since our last podcast, and part of that is we've had a lot of stuff going on. I'll be sure to do a seasonal recap from the spring as we preview the upcoming fall uh, races that we've got coming up. But in this podcast, we will be doing a Q&A with our new developmental coach, Jeff Bollet. Uh, we're excited to have Jeff on board as he's a really knowledgeable coach, wealth of experience, has shown good success developing athletes. Um, so we're excited to have him as someone to lead our development group. The development group, the purpose of that is I've always had the intent of keeping the group that I coach between 8 to 12 athletes max. I feel like when you start exceeding that, it becomes hard to give enough individualized attention to each athlete. So that 8 to 12, to me, has been that sweet spot of having enough athletes that they can either train together, work out together, be a good support system to one another, but still be easy enough for me to manage as the coach to make sure that I don't overextend myself, but that I can also dedicate enough individualized attention to each athlete. So the development group allows us to take on an additional 8 to 12 athletes, which Jeff will be leading. Now, the purpose of that developmental group isn't isn't to say that those athletes don't have decent ability or the potential to make uh, a mark on the post-collegiate level themselves, but they're athletes that definitely need a little bit more time to develop their ability to be able to compete in a lot of the upper tier post-collegiate races, some of the U.S. road racing championships. They may need to drop marks to be able to qualify for a U.S. track championship or to even be able to compete in some of the, the larger marathon series like the World Marathon Majors and even something like the Houston Marathon or CIM. So they're athletes that we feel have potential and upside to be able to develop, um, but athletes that definitely are a little bit underdeveloped at this time relative to their post-collegiate counterparts. And so we want to provide an, a training platform that allows them to continue their development. As I've said before in previous podcasts and interviews, the ironic nature of where we currently sit as a group is the marks that someone like Noah had shown on paper, we wouldn't be able to currently take, which would be a sad reality because then maybe Noah wouldn't have had that opportunity to continue his development. So with the development group, our hope is that we can provide that arena for athletes with decent potential, um, with a good, solid organizational structure, a good, well-rounded coach like Jeff, uh, to give them that potential opportunity to improve. So in this episode, we'll kind of go through Jeff's background, a little bit of what he thinks makes a good good potential athlete. Him and I came from very similar backgrounds in that we both ran at the D2, D3 level, started out our coaching careers, developing youth athletes, high school athletes. But Jeff also has experience coaching at the collegiate level, which he did as soon as he, he graduated from his undergrad program. So excited to have Jeff on board. Hope you guys enjoy. And we are looking to take on a few other athletes to the development group. So if you're a developmental athlete out there and you think you might have potential to develop on the post-collegiate level, uh, give us a shout and I'll put you in touch with Jeff and you can see if we're a good fit for you. 
One final thought before we get into this podcast, a quick shout out to our new shoe sponsor. We are fortunate enough that even though we are a younger group, we have grown quickly over the past year that we're fortunate that 361, a company that is looking to make a a larger footprint here in the U.S. distance running market, has identified us as as a team that, that can grow with them. So we're fortunate to have them on board. We'll be talking a little bit more about them in future episodes and hope you guys enjoy hearing a little bit about Jeff's background. Our brains want to simplify things. So as a coach, we want to believe that if we assign an athlete X, we're going to get Y result. Mm -hmm. And the reality is one athlete, you might give them X and they get Q. Another athlete does X and they get Y. Another athlete does X and they get zero. All right, so I'm sitting here with Jeff Bollet, who is one of the new coaches on our Roots Running Project team. Adding him onto our coaching roster has allowed us to now expand our team by another 10 athletes or so. Um, A lot of those are athletes that have the hope of developing into uh, national class athletes, but need a little bit more time. We feel like there are so many athletes with untapped potential at that collegiate level that just aren't given the opportunities that some of those more accoladed, highly decorated athletes might have. So we're excited to have Jeff on board. I'll let him kind of describe a little bit of his background, um, and then we'll kind of dive into why pursuing coaching on that post-collegiate level is something that he's kind of looked at doing and what he thinks the making of a good athlete at the post-collegiate level might look like. Um, So Jeff, excited to have you. Welcome aboard. Thanks a bunch, Richie. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be aboard, uh, for sure. Uh, your, your, uh, question there, like why the, uh, why Roots is a good, is a good, uh, team to do that with. My initial thought was like, uh, I'm just glad that, uh, I can, I, you think I can do that. So, <laughs> so that's a, so that's a big thing, uh, there. Um, but Jeff, Jeff and I, um, outside of bringing them on the Roots team, we've known each other for, for a number of years now. Yeah. Um, both as, as coaching colleagues and, um, I've respected your work for, for a number of years with what you were able to do while you were at Lions high school. Um, and I'll let you talk, dive deeper into that as, as we get rolling here, but why don't you give us a little bit about your background, kind of what you're from Illinois, but what brought you out to Boulder? Why coaching, um, was coaching something you had intended to do when you moved out here and, and so forth? Yeah. Uh, so, um, kind of start now and, and then jump back. Uh, so, uh, currently in my 17th year coaching, um, and, and really that, that goes back to my, uh, gra- graduating college in, in 2000, but really the desire to coach started somewhere, uh, first semester in college. Um, I went to college and I wanted to be a rock star. Uh, what I, what I realized is I liked music and my classmates in the music program were actually good at it. So, uh, uh, that kind of coincided with, uh, I was running, uh, collegiate cross country at a small division three school just outside of St. Louis in Illinois, Greenville college. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and was was loving it. I loved cross country and track in high school, and and that continued. And so, kind of this realization that I wanted to be involved with that mm-hmm. uh, after I was done competing after college. And uh, so, when you're 18 years old and you think about how you can do that, uh, you think, "Well, I'll be a coach." And then you think, who are coaches? And, oh, I had a high school coach. So I got an education degree with the intention of being a high school coach and a high school teacher. Um, Happened to be in the right place at the right time. The program was 13 athletes, men and women, in the cross program when I started. My junior year, we had 45 or 46 or so. Mm -hmm. And that continued to senior year. And the head coach at the time, Brian Patton, thought, I could fill the role of a full-time assistant, so mm-hmm. a little bit of right place at the right time and showing some promise uh, in that. So this was right after college, going right into assistant coaching. Yeah, uh, and, and technically, my my first year, I was uh, I was the player coach, so I had a yep. fifth year of track eligibility. Uh, so I was the assistant coach in cross, had my own office with a shiny nameplate. Oh, nice. uh, but I was doing that, so we had to do some stuff with the NCAA because I was getting paid to coach, but then in track, I actually had eligibility in this race. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was right away. So it was a seamless, uh, transition. So for someone that wanted to coach, uh, and that being the motivation, it was a pretty perfect gig, uh, to, to start out with. Cause that's what I did all day, every day yep. I coached and, uh, and, and it was, it was really good because I could immerse myself in it and and learn uh, and you know whether it was the administrative side of things or the fundraising side of things or the actual programming and relationship side of things, it, it was great because I didn't have to split time between a different job and 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 coaching. So, did you find that when you were coaching in the the fall and then being an athlete in the spring? Was it difficult for your teammates to kind of view you as one versus the other, or, or how did that work? It it wasn't um, not that I was fast, but there's that certain element of being the top runner on the team, yep. where there's a particular respect for that. Yeah, it's intrinsically already built in. Yeah, so having been that athlete as as a previously, I wasn't always, but I was top three in cross country and then top top guy my senior year and usually that way in track as well so there was that athletic respect uh and what i would consider being a good teammate respect uh, in there as well so whether that's friendly helpful whatever those characteristics would be it ended up being pretty smooth like the the reaction when the team found out that i was going to be the assistant coaches it was excitement. It was very positive. Especially to still have you around. Yeah. Yeah. So people really liked that. The, the biggest, the, the biggest thing was the racing. Like it would, the 5k in college is the second to last event. So it would suck to coach all day and then have to like go try to race yeah. and do that. So, uh, it was very, very evident that like there were some limitations to the performance, but, but I qualified for the national meet in the 5k in uh, the spring of 2001 and, and did that uh, and coached at the meet and then ran at the meet. So, Which is kind of a cool, difficult, like you said, to switch the hats, but also kind of a cool experience to reflect back on. Oh, for sure. It's like putting yourself in the, like, 
anxiety of the athlete mode while you're also trying to calm down the anxiety of your teammates at the same yeah. time. And, and it really, it set things up because I continued to compete through the five years that I coached at Greenville. Uh, and, and really where, where it was really useful is, I think I like a, a lot of young coaches, they're products of their previous coaches. Yep. And some of them, you know, for better or worse, stay in that mold. For myself, what I recognized is that there were a lot of roads to Rome. There were a lot of ways to do things, friends on other teams, and you just start talking to them about what yep. they do, about these different experiences. So me still competing, even after my collegiate eligibility was up, uh, I was on like this six to 12 month curve of I'd learn about some new workout or some new philosophy and I would then try it myself. And, and I think I did a pretty good job of going like, well, that's not great for me, but I could see it working for certain athletes that have this temperament or this, this might be their strength as an athlete. Or, so you were self-coaching at the same time, like self-experiment yeah. of one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't the, oh, this worked for me, this will work for everybody. There were some things where it was like, oh, this like this has got instant implementation. Like yep. This is just valuable. For, for me, one of those things would be um, like mental and emotional training. Yep. Like that's a skill. And so it's worth spending time doing that. I was exposed to that at a USATF school and learned some very basic techniques that I immediately went back and started implementing with, with the whole team. Like, yeah. And was the coach, uh, the coach that you were working with, it was your college coach, but it was like, um, was he pretty open to letting you implement what you, Oh yeah. yeah. He handed the reins over. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Right, right, right away. So he was my freshman year, 13 men and women in the cross country program. He was a full-time CPA. Then at two forty-five. Or three o'clock, he would drive twenty minutes to the school. We'd do practice at three forty-five, and then he was working till eleven p.m. as a coach. So he had two full-time jobs. Yep. He was losing hair uh, doing that as a twenty-eight-year-old, yep. and then junior, my junior year, he was brought on full-time. He was the only full-time coach for cross, no assistant. The team grew. He was the, also the only full-time coach in track, and we had a throws coach and him doing the sprints and the jumps and the distance and we had another guy kind of helping with the hurdlers and the vaulters <laughs> so when i was able to come on he very willingly like said I all right help. yeah here you go 800 meters and up maybe some 400 runners they're they're yours so you're so. kind of thrown into the fire as a 22 23 year old yes coaching yeah. coaching college right yeah. did you find that now, obviously, you're as a college athlete, you're being given your training. Now, yeah. having to write the training for other athletes, um, like you said, you were a self-experiment of one. But w what was that process like for you when it came to like developing that style for your athletes? Ignorance is bliss, mm -hmm. uh, and and I would say. So uh, Brian Patton, the head coach still at, at Greenville, called me the cattle prod. Mm -hmm. uh, like I was always asking, why do we do this? Why do we do that? We did something different in high school. Why are we doing this here? And again, kind of that product of, of what you were. Yep. I remember f going through his file cabinets 
one like right before winter break at school and finding Coach V Hill's book and yeah. finding uh, Peter Coe's book yeah. and finding um, Better Training for Distance Runner. Oh, no, that's the, uh, not the Lydiard book. It's uh, Benson, Tony Benson. It's out of print. Uh, had Adam Goucher on the cover. Okay. Uh, anyway, finding those three books, taking them home and reading them over winter break, and it was like reading a foreign language, uh, especially the Martin and Co. book. Yeah, like that was, and and just like, oh, I, we do this. Why don't we do this? What does this even mean? And then, um, so that would have been in like '97, like winter in '97, and then it was. Uh, the next year when the Jack Daniels running formula book came out mm -hmm. and uh, it's not a, it's not an endorsement or a critique, but that book was like the secret decoder wheel for me. Yeah, it was. And I think this is what Jack has done really well is he was able to explain things in a way that a 20 year old who ran could understand. Yep. So I was able to read the Daniels book and then make sense of, Martin and Co. or make sense of Coach V Hill uh -huh. or aspects of that that I didn't understand. Yep. So how that then bleeds into coaching is I it's still not like I don't want to say I'm on a crusade to explain it, but like our brains want to simplify things. So, so as a coach, we want to believe that if we assign an athlete X, we're going to get Y result. Mm -hmm. And the reality is one athlete, you might give them X and they get Q. Another athlete does X and they get Y. Another athlete does X and they get zero. Yeah. Like, like it's not a template. Yeah, there's not a template. But that ignorance is bliss. Understanding Daniels, it was like, all right, here's our six-week mesocycles. And for, for, for group team format, I mean, going back to both, both you and I also got part of our starts at youth and high school coaching. Yeah. It's like... Some of that has to be done. When you're dealing with 90 athletes, sure. it's hard to individualize everything. Yep. And so that that kind of like template format may be easy to kind of implement initially. And then you start kind of learning tendencies of different athletes. Yeah. Same thing with college. I mean, you're not dealing with 90, but you're dealing with a large number. Yeah. And especially much more talented athletes than you might have as a youth. For that sure. need to be de developed quite differently. Yeah. The thing that like Jack has in that book is like threshold up to 10%. Mm -hmm. The key phrase there is up to, up to not the 10%. Like yeah. that's when people read that and they're like, Oh, I'm running 70 miles a week. I'll do a seven mile. And I have threshold. to get them at 10% yeah. by this point of the season. Yeah. Doesn't so, work like that. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, I, I was telling uh, another coach, the worst thing that ever happened to me initially is like the training worked. Yeah. Like, uh, like I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread as a yeah. coach, but where that also helped me is it did give me confidence. My general tendency is to be really slow, like that six to 12 month implementation. Yeah. So things would work. I got confidence. Things would work. I thought I could do no wrong. But then you start recognizing that when an athlete gets injured or they don't perform, it's not just on the athlete. And so that took time yeah. for that to realize. Um, there's two big things that stand out to me in coaching development and uh, as far as like looking to do things 
outside of a temple or do things different ways. Mm-hmm. And one was uh, a friend of mine now and, and now my wife who I was coaching at the time came to me one day before practice and they're like, Jeff, we just, we can't do this workout today. It's the fourth week in a row you've had us do this. And then tomorrow we're going to do the same thing. And like, we're, we'd rather like jump off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I was like, here's two seniors, two best runners on the team telling me this, like, this is important. Like yeah. I got to figure something out now because they're leaving on their warm up. Like I got to have this in like two to three miles, like, 15 to 20 minutes, I got to have answers for this. Yep. So that sticks out for me. Like, how do you get a, the same stimulus or what you think is the appropriate stimulus? How do you get that in a different way? Yep. And then I was at the pre-nationals, like, recognition banquet, and I sat at the same table as Brian Deemer, uh-huh. uh, bronze medalist in the steeplechase in 84, coach at Kelvin College in Michigan. And I don't remember how... We got into talking about it, but Brian said something along the lines of like using 10K pace some days or using 5K pace. And and my brain just started going like, those paces aren't that different, but you can manipulate them in such a way that you can get a similar stimulus and and adjust that. So like those two things as an early coach really kind of hit home, hit home and then liberated me to then these things that I was experimenting on with myself or very formulaic than starting to branch out of, out of those things. Um, and then that's, that was the very early development, uh, there all the while I'm still training, um, which then I got to a point, I was 27 and I said, I can't retire and try to get fast. And again, fast is very relative. phrase. Uh, but I can go run for a couple of years and then and get then back into coaching. Get back into coaching. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, what catapulted that move to to Boulder? Because you moved to yeah. pursue training, not coaching. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so where that where that switch kind of took place. Yeah. So it was... Was there, like, a performance or was it just, like, a gradual progression that you were like, maybe I could do this more on a serious note? It was... Uh, a gradual progression and an itch that needed to be scratched, basically, and a little pipe dream thrown on top. <laughs> why, why Boulder? What, what was it that spurned? Um, so it was 11 different places across the U.S. that I identified as these places have more of an infrastructure. And that's not just trails or altitude. It's culture uh, potential for training partners and then like you can run anywhere but when you're in southern illinois excuse the stereotype but it happened like people in their pickup trucks are like aiming at you on the side of the road yeah or if i go into the grocery store in my two inch split shorts like you get some weird looks yeah. like i can go to a relatively nice restaurant here in boulder in, in split shorts in split shorts and yeah. nobody thinks twice about it yeah so like that I, we identified some places, and my, my wife and I went to visit, and she had nannied out here one summer, uh, and one of my roommates in college moved out here and shifted from running, and he did the pro triathlete thing for mm-hmm. a couple of years. So so I knew of Boulder. We looked at places on the West Coast, and when Amy, my wife, was like, it's too far, then it was Boulder and Colorado Springs, and then it was basically like, well, we both know Boulder, like yeah. so that's that's where it was. But that was it was very much, it was 
coaching all day and hopping in a 5k and recognizing that like this is not my best effort even though I just PR'd or you know hey all right I'll pace a 10k and there's 10 schools here and there's probably 15 guys that can hit Provo maybe auto marks and I'll talk to all the coaches and like I'll drive the bus as long as I can and we'll set it up you know to run whatever the pace was and I would run until I fell off pace and then I would either step off or jog in or whatever it was but it was that like I'd rather be racing this but I have two athletes that can hit a mark and this guy so like I'll do that because I'm at least for the greater good good. yeah, yeah for the greater good so a number of years doing that and just recognizing that I wanted to chase something and knew that like my line is working 60, 70, 80 hours a week as a coach was not conducive to running 60, 70 miles a week as an athlete. So that I can coach until I die, but I can't get fast when I'm 70 years old or 60 years old, whatever it is. So, um, so Boulder then became the place and moved out here and got a job working 35 hours a week, which was like nothing. <laughs> yeah, comparatively. So, yeah, comparatively. So. Now, how long did you compete before deciding to get back into coaching again? Uh, it was almost instantaneous. Uh, that you started coaching. Started coaching, yeah. it, but it wasn't in that organized capacity. Mm-hmm. Like, one, there's still that, like, that self-coached experimental mindset, so you're still like, how do I make myself better? And so it was just me doing me, mm-hmm. uh, but I still had that coaching mindset coaching background for Mm -hmm. myself and then you just i worked at boulder running company at the time and so there's just other people there so coaching is maybe a little bit of a strong word is like advising or a little bit of consulting uh in that like someone would ask questions so i became the go-to to ask questions but when people find out you're a coach like they have no problem like saying oh they're looking for a coach at this school or that school Um, so, but it was 2005 to 2010 where I kind of existed in this, like working with a guy here, a group of five people that I worked with and like, I would write the training and everybody knew that I had this coaching background. So they were fine. Just And these were post collegiates at the time or adults. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So it was some, there was a guy that walked on to see you or some athletes that, went somewhere and then opted not to run and they were in college or they were recent graduates. So 20 to 25 years old, uh, would have been the, would have been the spectrum there. So then when you started at Lions, you were coaching at the middle school level. Right. And how is, cause at this point you've coached collegiate, you've coached post-collegiate to now switching to coach youth. Yeah. There's some similarities in terms of long-term development, but there's also like it's a much different experience, much different. Like, how is how did you have to switch your mindset? Yeah. Well, the or biggest, how was the challenge, I guess? Yeah, the, the, the biggest switch was the question. I, I was looking to not work in retail as much and to transition into coaching more. My wife was getting her PhD, so I couldn't just up and, and leave. leave yeah. uh, so how do I get back into coaching? Had a connection, Mark Roberts, uh, Ke- Kevin Akers connected me with Mark Roberts, the head coach at Lions. And the, the question was, can you coach the high jump? So yeah. that was the very big, like that was the very big difference. Like I got to get comfortable with that to which I responded, I will coach the high jump. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it was, it was almost more the event 
than the than the age group. That yep. was the first thing to get used to. Uh, so I, Mark needed a high jump coach, and then the way to get a little bit of pay was working with the middle school. Uh -huh. The high school, middle school at Lines is in one building. It's one track. So uh, the first couple weeks of the year, I was with the high school jumpers. Then for six weeks, which was the middle school season, I was doing middle school for an hour, and then their practice would get done, and then I'd finish with the high school, and then the last couple weeks was back to the high school. So the, the biggest transition there was dealing with a different level of competency. Mm -hmm. um, so even though at a Division three school where you're just happy to have warm bodies at some point, uh, I mean, you want good athletes, and we got good athletes in, but the school is tuition-driven, so you're recruiting a six-minute female just because she's going to be a benefit to the school. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a range of a four, 445 female miler versus a six-minute, but showing up at middle school and like asking kids to like do a warm-up laugh a lap and kids laugh yeah like you want us to run a laugh that's funny coach so like figuring out how you motivate excite keep interest uh with that group uh with the middle schoolers um and then on the high school level it was like how do i coach the high jump like I don't like I knocked my 2007th grade, and that's about what I can tell you yeah. about the high jump. Um, yeah, you know it's funny when, like, you you joking about trying to get the kids to run like a warm up lap. When I had when my first day coaching the middle school when I was at Peak to Peak, I was trying to explain the purpose of the dynamic warm up and taking the kids through lunges. And I had one kid raise his hand and said, first of all, we don't do lunges before we've warmed up run because you're going to get hurt and you shouldn't have your knee cross this angle. And yeah. it's like, the kids tried to tell me my first day on the job, like how to do lunges. He's a sixth grader. Yeah. Like, it's different, different, different experience group that it does take a little bit of challenge to try to try to maneuver that, especially when you're used to dealing with a different level of maturity too. Yeah. Like you could have kids jousting with the, the, the high jump bar. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. My, my one rule was that you had to be moving. So I never wanted to, I said, don't let me catch you like hiding behind the tree. Like if you don't want to run and your parents are making you be here, I understand that, but just walk then yeah. just we're going to go out for 20 minutes, run a little, and then if you can't walk, but you have to be moving. Like, that's the only thing I'm going to ask of you. Like, that's the minimum expectation. And yep. if that's too much, then I do need to talk to your parents and we can figure something out there. Yep. But, and every kid plugged into that, even the kids that were the troublemakers, and they would still screw around, but they at least screwed around while they were walking. Yeah. Uh, so, like, w w one of the things that clicked with me really early at the college. I, I was adamant about having a couch in my office because I wanted athletes to come spend Just time. hang out. Yeah, yeah. The, the relational piece. So what I found is that it didn't matter if it was with a 25-year-old kid that was pretty fast or um, a college athlete or a 13-year-old. Like Everybody likes it when you, you know, pay attention and take interest in that in that person. So that that made that aspect that that transition pretty easy. Um, but then just like 
the squirreliness like that was like yeah. that even with the high school kids like that was that was difficult um now at Lions you had a pretty decent success though you guys won a bunch of state titles we we did yeah um so that was a big thing so when I started I was fortunate enough to coach an athlete Paul Roberts who is a bit of an enigma um uh ended up being a footlocker, All-American, fifth place there, two-time Nike National, All-American, mm-hmm. qualified for World Cross Country as a junior in high school. He was very good as a sixth grader. So here I had, like, the kids that I'm just begging to walk, and then this kid who's, like, militant about, like, the assignments that, yeah. that you give him. So, like, figuring out how to work with that spectrum uh, of athletes. So I was fortunate enough to be able to move up with Paul um, and, and some other, some other kids, the, the Such brothers, uh, who were there. Um, and then just, there was just a really good supporting cast, uh, on both the boys and the girls side. Um, so when Paul started high school in 2012, there was an opening, uh, with the high school team in cross country and track. So I was able to move from the middle school to the high school and, uh, we, we, we did have a good string. The boys won a uh, state title in our small classification four years in a row. Mm-hmm. Paul won the individual title four years. It was kind of fun. Paul's sophomore year, we went one, two, three yeah. uh, at state. Um, which which for your guys' classification, that was scoring. So yeah. it was a perfect score. Perfect score, yeah. And, and, that, and, our, and our fourth runner was very good that year as well, Matthew Dillon. I would have put my top three against anybody in the country and my top four against anybody in the country that year. But yeah, and I think he was, wasn't he top 10 for your small class? Yeah, yeah, and, and Matthew Matt, finished yeah. in the top 10, our fourth runner. But everywhere else you need five for cross country. Yeah. And our fifth runner was very good for our classification, but on a national level it was a little different. A little yeah, different yeah. Story. Um, so yeah, so we had a, we had a good string there. Um, and, and that also was a... Going back to that experimenting, at this point in time, I was no longer running, but I had had this and still was coaching jumpers in track. So I was exposed to a very different way of thinking that I hadn't been mm-hmm. as, a, as a distance coach for, for 10 years at collegiate level, coaching myself, working with a couple of collegiate or fresh, freshly post-collegiate athletes. Um, coaching the high jump took me down this speed power path that was very foreign, um, uh, a, f- a phenomenal coaching educator, Boo uh, Schexnader, who works with the um, U.S. Coaches Association. I took some some courses from him. He used to be at LSU. He used to be at LSU, yep. yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to butcher the exact quote. And we wasn't saying it to a quote, but it was basically like, the distance coaches in the room, you need to open your head, turn your brain upside down before we start going into this content because there's just things that are physiologically, mental, emotionally, whatever, sound for a sprinter, jumper, thrower, speed power athlete that just seem counterintuitive to what most of us learn on the distance coaching side. Right. And what I soon feel like I learned and now kind of believe is that there's a lot of myth that perpetuates in coaching Mm -hmm. and there's not as many differences on the distance and the sprint side as we would be led to believe uh, initially like the I'm the distance runner and think that the sprinters are lazy because I see them standing around a lot 
there's a very physiological purpose. reason that they're that they're doing that. Um, well, and I think that's one of the things too. When when we were looking to bring on an assistant coach, be able to add that next tier of athlete, um, that's partially why you and I started having that conversation was because we have a very similar mindset when it comes to ancillary training, ways to balance stimulus as it comes to workouts, one, to help improve someone's athleticism, but also their resiliency to be able to handle the demands of higher intensity or higher volume type of workloads that they need to be doing as a post-collegiate elite distance runner. And there is, there is there's a lot of mis, misinterpretation, misconception of what constitutes power and strength training for a distance runner and so it, it was refreshing to kind of hear that you had a very and, and we 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 came into kind of high school coaching very similarly in the sense that like middle school was kind of our avenue you had to coach high jumpers I had to also coach triple and long yeah. and so it exposes you to some biomotor control patterns coordination power that you if you were learning specifically just from a distance coach, you may not have had that same exposure. Right. Which is something Coach Hill is pretty big on. He has his, what he calls his plyometric Olympics yeah. as an assessment of an athlete's athletic ability. Sure. So. Yeah. So, uh, so it, it, that experimental, I, I was, when I was training and like advising some of those athletes, that's when... I, I took a bigger interest in the ancillary pieces. It was very helter-skelter when I was at the college. Like, uh, I think it's important, but I kind of don't know. And then I was training and wanted it to be important, but it was still, it was consistent, but it was still helter-skelter in that it was like, I don't know what to do when, or I don't even know what the scope of what I could do is. And I don't have, I don't want to pay for a gym. Um, so like, what can I do with a med ball? What can I do with body weight? So learning those things but then moving into the high school and at that point and having this this jumping uh, speed power knowledge that I was gaining and trying to work those things out so it was a new it was another major shift in getting these all these components to work together uh, and, and then kind of going back to that like that ignorance is bliss or when things work like it's the worst thing that could happen to you yeah. but what I saw was that there were benefits to this athletes that maybe as a freshman kept going through these minor injury cycles but once they were in the program longer going through the ancillary pieces and adapting their running appropriately and not just thinking everybody should run 20 or 30 or 60 miles a week adapting those loads but then having these consistent ancillary pieces in the athlete that was hurt every other week, freshman year, she could have more all-state accolades than Paul Roberts when she graduates as a as a senior because she's healthy yes, uh, and staying healthy and staying healthy exactly. Yeah. So that that speed power knowledge and the distance knowledge, I got to experiment again and have that have that go through. Um, Basically, till uh, the spring of um, 2016, mm -hmm. um, and that just happened to be when when Paul graduated. And then for 
basically fa family reasons. I have two little boys. My wife's a professor at CU Denver. Needed to shift things uh, a bit with my time commitments. And so I stepped back from the daily programming at Lions. Uh, and so that like that, like fast forwards us into, into now. Yeah, it's like timing works out perfect of... Like, I had left Peak to Peak to start the Roots group about a year prior to that. Yeah. And then that allowed us the time to develop. It worked out timing-wise for when you were stepping down at Lions, allowed you that transition to now here we are in 2017, a year later, yeah. adding that next tier of athlete. But you did spend, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think has driven kind of the, the piece to get to that post-collegiate level. And some of the philosophy with coming from the coaching the high jumpers drove you to seek out the coaching apprenticeship down at Altus. Was it the high jumping that drove you down there? Was it wanting to develop a different skill set for distance runners that drove you down there? Was it Dan Path in particular that drove you? Yeah, so 2010 is when I started with the high jumpers. Basically after that season, I started with working with all the, all the jumpers uh -huh. at that point. And back to when I was a new distance coach, just like grabbing whatever books, videos, co online courses that I could get my hands on. That's where I would go at the coaching clinics to the hour presentation. And it's not to say that I know everything far from it, but I got to a point with books and online courses and the hour presentations at the clinics where I felt like I you was hurt it all. Yeah. I was stagnant there. So my, in my head, I was going, I'd love to be able to sit down with somebody who like does this, like a high level coach and just ask them these questions that I seem to be stuck on. Well, I was at the Colorado Coaches Association Clinic and John Godina, uh, former world champion uh, thrower, Olympic medalist uh, thrower was presenting and he had started this place it was originally called the world throw center and then it morphed into the world athletic center and he said we do this thing called the apprentice coach program and you can come down and talk to our coaches and talk to our athletes and i was like that's it that's the thing that's yeah. what i did like for that's what i've wanted to do so um timing wasn't right then that was in 2012 a couple of life occurrences happened and i booked a ticket and signed up for the, they call it their ACP apprentice coach program in the spring of, or uh, excuse me, in January of 2015. And uh, this was now when they were Altus. They, they were still World, World Athletic, Athletic Center okay. at that time. That summer they became Altus. I gotcha. Um, but I, I knew, I knew of Dan Path and I knew he was down there and now I had this opportunity to go down. So it was more the, like, I want to go down because I have these jumps questions. And that's like the super bonus that Dan is there. He's the one and I to Real quick, if you can to. give everyone a little background on Dan. He's a, uh, one of the legendary coaches in yeah. U.S. track and field, but internationally International, as well. Yeah. So uh, Dan Path, uh, I think this is Dan's 45th year of coaching. He's coached at 10 Olympics. Uh, this is the first world championship he hasn't coached at. Numerous Olympic medalists, several world record holders in various events, sprints, jumps, vault. But he's, he's very well-rounded. Uh, he's worked with Tiger Woods. He's worked with NFL players, um, golfers, just various sports. Um, 
So, so I, I didn't know all that at the time. I just knew that Dan was an accomplished coach, and he's this guy that I can ask jump questions to. So, like, I'm in. Uh, so, I, so I went down to Altus, and and that again, like, I'm learning speed power stuff, and I knew I could get some answers down there. Uh, but showing up for that week in January 2015 to say that it made an impression on me would be an understatement. Uh, just. There was a lot of learning. I think I went in. We got an email from the guy that ran the program. And he's like, write your questions down before you come. So I had like these five questions. that like, I'm going to get these answers and it's going to change me as a coach. And so I, of course, like, like day one, and I'm learning and listening in, in these groups. And I don't think I ever asked my five questions because I recognized that my questions were just like either too focused or I was asking the wrong kind of question. And I probably left with 50 to 100 questions. Uh, but was very energized, very excited. Um, one of the big things that I pulled away there was the concept of like how the medical side can interact with the coaching side. And there's going to be various philosophies on this, and that's fine. I had recognized as an athlete that there was benefit there. I would get my 30-minute massage every two weeks because that's what I could afford, and I did that basically for five years while I was competing in Boulder. But the first day, I show up at the track, and there's like seven tables set up, and uh, acupuncture, chiropractor, PT, massage therapist, like just various therapists there doing different kinds of treatments on athletes. And so that's driven my continuing education Last Thursday, I finished up a massage therapist licensure program, um, and kind of going back to what you said, that's just another layer with roots where, where you and I have similar approaches yep. in that it's not just, oh, Jeff's a distance coach that also takes these aspects of speed power. There's also a, a medical, it's maybe a generous term with a massage therapist, but there's a, there's a medical component to that and recognizing my limitations but also how I can help uh, but then being able to work with a chiropractor or other medical professionals what I think it's unique too in the sense that I've heard the criticism from a couple well-respected track and field coaches of be careful as a coach putting too much stock into the the feedback from the medical provider not in the sense of like don't take their advice seriously but don't let it completely affect your decision-making process when it comes to coaching yeah and vice versa there's sometimes a lack of communication between the coaches the strength and conditioning coach the athletic trainer the healthcare practitioner so i think the unique format at which damn path practices the way that you're you're trying to approach coaching the way that i by default like i, I didn't go to grad school with the intent of becoming a coach but like i went to grad school came into coaching and found a way to blend the two together. I joke that it's like being a Swiss army knife for coaching. Right. Yeah. The one that's writing the training is the one that's writing the strength and conditioning coaching, which is also yeah. the one providing the healthcare. Yeah. You're going to treat your athletes a little bit differently. Yeah. Like you have to push the envelope, know how to pull that envelope back when there's true pain versus just soreness. Whereas I think sometimes from a medical side, you're always going to err on the side of caution, a little bit more conservative versus being a little bit more aggressive when it comes to allowing 
the reins to be let go a little bit for an athlete to try to push. Yeah. Whereas the coach, I feel like a lot of times wants to always push until that athlete breaks and then they have to take that conservative, yeah. conservative way. So, and that's, that's a generalization, but at the same time, I think having the scope and the ability to kind of transition those hats accordingly, like when one of my athletes is telling me that their Achilles is bothering them out at practice, you have the ability to kind of assess it yeah. and understand some of the severity that might hamper their ability to perform the workout. The You're weighing the risk versus reward of performing it versus not performing it. Still have the ability to treat it afterwards yeah. much differently than if you had to say, okay, well, I'm not sure if it's okay to push or not today. Go see the doctor. Let him tell me when it's okay for you to push. And depending on who that practitioner may be, may be aggressive, may not be, it, it kind of depends. So yeah. not saying that it's the best approach to always be the one in charge of everything. You have to, like you and I have talked off microphone of, you have to know your scope and when it's appropriate to kind of refer out. Right. But having that like entry portal to be the one assessing and making those decisions yeah. is, is a benefit to the athlete in most circumstances. Yeah, the that story I shared earlier about the two athletes coming to me and saying that they can't do this workout, like the realization that what we assign as a coach has a profound impact on the athlete physically, but also on other levels, mental, emotional, the, the psychological scope, but then also recognizing what we assign in programming has an impact physically, not just you're improving ideally as a runner, but on that athlete's health. And when, when I was at the high school and taking an interest in these things after this experience at Altus, it, it forced me to, to start learning more, again, kind of a very, not even tip of the iceberg, the snowflake on the tip of the iceberg level of movement and motor learning and anatomy and kinesiology and kinematics and just trying to learn those things because if I can see an athlete do something, maybe I can then help that athlete avoid injury as well. What I would run into is, you know, an athlete had some kind of an injury and you would suggest going to a practitioner and they live in this town so it's easy to get here. And I would say, have so-and-so, you know, ask the, the, whoever the care provider to check this or that. And then the next day, you, the athlete would come back and like, well, they didn't look at that. And, and I don't know this for sure, but like as a medical professional, when some random high school coach, coach asks you to look at that, like most medical professionals aren't going to, to listen to that because who's, it's just some high school coach. So I'm not saying that I was right in, in my hunches. And I don't want to call it a diagnosis because that's not what I was trying to do. I was just trying to expedite the process not because I know but because I see the athlete move yeah. every day and I don't need to be told I'm right but at least tell me I'm wrong and then go go somewhere else yeah I mean I, I've seen that even just from the medical side where you refer someone for image the imaging report comes back normal you look at the images at the area of discomfort symptom pattern pain and it's, it's actually abnormal, so I call up the radiologist and tell them what I'm looking at, and the radiologist is, 
has there's been the cases where the radiologist is like, you know what, that is the case. I'm going to add an addendum and send you a new updated report. And it just helped when you when you are familiar with whether it be the medical case history, the athlete history of when they're having discomfort, the phases at which they're feeling it, the timing at which they do, the type of athlete that that person is. You you want the eyes from the medical practitioner to also indicate that. Where And the reality with medical side too is who knows if the medical practitioner was behind on schedule yeah. and went down their normal set of tests that they would do on everybody, regardless of if they're a runner or a mountain climber or whatever, yeah. um, for a specific body area. Um, so it, it is in that unique context too where having a little bit of that medical background with the coaching experience, being a former athlete, like all of that factors into what you and I have talked about a little bit, that well-rounded, all-encompassing program to make sure that all aspects are being addressed when it comes to writing, training, and seeing an athlete develop. Yeah. Dan Dan calls it the performance trinity. You have the athlete, you have the therapist, and you have the coach. And so uh, I'm, I'm never going to claim to be a phenomenal therapist. My goal is to be an excellent coach and a competent therapist. But if I can handle one and a half or some of that therapist role that when I do talk to a doctor, a chiropractor, a PT, whatever it is, I can come at it from a more educated standpoint and something as silly as having LMT behind my name mm-hmm. gives me a little bit of that credit. Um, that's, that's great. And that was the intention of, even if I'm working with the high school kids and it, just worked out with the timing on the root side side of things and us knowing each other and putting all these pieces together that the opportunity with roots is 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 here yeah i mean your our trust was already built in i mean i would see some of your athletes as as a medical practitioner and we'd be at the same meets and so it's like i see you your ability to coach your athletes and so it's natural that like it would it would be a good fit because we already kind of knew how each other operated um, and then it's also complementary roles because yeah. of the medical background and we can bounce training idea and theory and stuff off of one another. It just helps, so, which is uh, one of the things that I'll emphasize on here of one of the goals that we'd like to take this podcast in the future is talking about some of those aspects, training right. theory, injury, rehab, injury prevention, um, different methodologies when it comes to ancillary strength workouts, ways to incorporate whether it's in seeking advice from a medical practitioner, when to time soft tissue work. Like there's so many different aspects that help with performance that aren't just the nuts and bolts of like writing a training plan that can drastically affect an athlete's ability to consistently perform and stay healthy doing it. So hopefully we can provide that aspect too from an educational piece yeah. outside of just trying to document how our athletes are doing and what it is that's working for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, one one of the things, Dan, like we said, is a very accomplished coach. Yeah. Um, like you said, seeing him as in action is kind of what drove you um, to, to pursue the LMT. Um, now, when you're looking from a coaching side, assessing an athlete, you know what type of program you want to run. Yeah. What is it that you're kind of looking for with the athletes that you know you'll be working with? I think kind of the 
the, the characteristics outside of like the numbers, right? Like I don't just want someone walking around as like a 1406 or above their head or someone walking around mm -hmm. like a 1630. Like, yeah, that ability is nice and that's what it's kind of maybe the initial draw or initial... It's an indicator. Like, an indicator, yeah. But I, I think I think people that are excited about an opportunity is is something that, that I like to see. Um, and then it kind of blend, blends in or meshes in with their their belief in themselves. Uh, so not a unbridled confidence or, or cockiness, but like I think I can get better and I'm excited to try. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of spirit uh, from from an athlete is is really the kind of athlete that I look forward to working with. Um, and and then. Because the amount of space is finite of of what I of who I think I can not who I, but the amount of athletes I think I can work with and deliver a high quality th that ability piece does have to be considered. Like mm -hmm. I, I know there's fourteen thirty post collegiate men out there that are really excited to do it, but that's also different than a four hundred two male that's coming out that that's excited to do it it's not to say that that 430 is any less of an athlete but because i feel right now i can work with eight to ten and give that give a high level of coaching and maybe ultimately up to 15 i don't know that mm -hmm. but I, I i need to be selective so that's that's like the hard and fast or the little more black and white aspect of the 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 athlete that that excites me but the bigger thing there is that, like, that person that is excited to keep trying and that they believe that they can improve. Yeah, I mean, you look at it like no disrespect to any of the athletes that are on the roster that I coach, but arguably the two best, Noah and Aaliyah, were a D2 and a D3 athlete. Yeah. Aaliyah was a 34-30 10-care and a 16-40 5-care. Whereas Noah was a fourteen thirty seven and a twenty nine forty ten care, so there are athletes like those out there that have under development, just haven't had the opportunities. They were good for their respective divisions, but not quite good enough for some of the upper level post collegiate groups. But not everyone is going to be them. Yeah. Just as like not every Division One All American is going to end up being an Olympian. Right. There's quite a few that end up not even pursuing post-collegiate running. Yeah. So a lot of that, like you said, has to come from the intrinsic drive, the excitement. I think blend of personalities of coach with athlete it plays a huge factor too because yeah. the buy-in factor is yeah. pretty phenomenal uh, or pretty phenomenal. But um, yeah, like there does have to be, especially as you're moving into some of those competitive realms, there does have to be an aspect of there's an early performance indicator. Doesn't necessarily mean they have to be Division One All American. Yeah. But room for improvement, ability to improve, and what that upside projection might look like, which may be difficult, but you want to at least have the confidence that upside projection or that the upside ability is there to compete nationally too. Yeah. Yeah. One of Dan's lines is, uh, if you want to be a good coach, go get great athletes. Mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, 
and there's a ton of truth to that. But then the other litmus test I think of coaching ability is can you see consistent results with different populations? Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that's different cultures or different age groups, different events, um, I think that comes in. So it's it's kind of that that balance. Like, of course, I'd love to have a stable of ten Olympic athletes, mm-hmm. um, and I would look like a great coach if yeah. that's what I had. Again, I think. I strive to be a great coach or a good coach, uh, but I also think that I can work with the athletes that do show potential and, and see progress. Uh, well, and, and like you, you had mentioned too, that's it's it's a little closer to your heart too, in the sense that that's kind of where you came from yeah. as a as a post collegiate, and yeah. so there is that like. I mean, I was a D2 athlete myself, and so it's like there's that special source of pride of being able to see that athlete develop that people may not know of or heard of and yep. they are now national class which yeah. is pretty exciting to see as well like For you sure. said it it's different when you have all the budget all the means in the world you're able to recruit the top talent just because you have those resources it doesn't necessarily yeah. make you a great coach not saying that they're that, yeah. that the teams that have that don't have great coaches just exactly. It's, it's not as true of an indicator as if you can consistently develop athletes to make them better than what you got them with. Right. So, Yeah. Like that's the two indicators that I would use at the high school every year were what were our improvement trends and what were our injury rates. Mm-hmm. And, and pretty much injury rates were low and improvement trends were trending up. Yep. So, maybe so you're doing something right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not as much as we'd like with some people, but then again, like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board and figure out how we can can do that. Is it a genetic limitation or is it programming? Is it lifestyle? What is that? But that's kind of the fun detective work. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that the coaching was irrational. It just may need to be tweaked for that individual. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Well, we're excited to have you on board, and I hope that our conversations as we kind of develop this podcast can continue to evolve too. It's exciting, obviously, like I said, someone as knowledgeable as you are to have you on staff. Uh, that that I can rely to as a resource, but that hopefully you and I can provide some good educational material for coaches that maybe want to be in our position or coaches like ourselves on the same level that are always trying to look to improve. Yeah, and and again, I I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to podcast, collaborating, whatever it is uh, in, in the future on that same line. I have a heart for education i have my education degree because again 18 year old that wanted to be involved with running so i got a teaching degree that i never used uh but i i feel like i uh like to educate on the coaching side of things now so i get to get to do that as well so yeah definitely look forward to that yeah well it'll it'll be exciting all right thanks chef thanks richie